From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new FPNA podcast. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRels, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we will welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis today. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. FPNA today is brought to you by DataRels, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. I am thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show. Welcome, Gemma Devi. We appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, and it's it's great to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah, well, we're really glad you could make some time to, you know, speak with me today and to share a little bit of your knowledge with our guests. So let me give a little bit of background and then we'll let her tell a little bit about herself. So she's currently located in the UK. She received a degree in business economics and finance. She's worked in finance, some commercial finance and FP&A roles over the last 15 years. Currently works for uh, comparethemarket.com. And why don't I go ahead and give you a minute to just tell us a little bit about your background and how you uh, ended up where you're at today. Yeah, it'd be great to. Yes, so my career started in the year 2000, or almost 22 years ago, as a a finance analyst at a um, US company called Silicon Graphics that some of you may have have heard of. So we used to be hugely known for our computers helping to um, create things for Disney, like things like Toy Story, um, gladiator movie yeah so as a first role it was a really exciting company to to be part of and then actually our our campus ended up being bought by google and became the famous google campus oh wow yeah so and I, so yeah i've like you said i've spent the majority of my career within financial planning and analysis um and also within some commercial roles as well and I guess when I started my career in FP&A, I like to use some sporting analogies. And, and, and it really was, FP&A was about being a scorekeeper uh, <laughs> and, and really more focused on, on the, the actuals, the historics of, of what those scores were. And um, I guess as, as we've moved, you know, over the last 20 years, we've then seen FP&A evolve into what I'd call the match predictor. So where we then started looking more forwardly mm-hmm. around forecasting, um, yeah, predictive analytics. In the last t- uh, 10 years in terms of my career and where I'm operating, it's now more, I'd say, in team selection. And, and by team selection, not just in terms of leading teams, but actually being that trusted advisor. So being that trusted advisor to the business, to the, to the sports team. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's been an interesting um, evolution of, of FP&A and, and it's been great to be part of that. In terms of the, some of the roles that I've done, so I'd say um, you quite often hear that careers are less like ladders now and, and more squiggly. The first part of my career there were more sort of steps and and, le- and ladders, but 
definitely in the last 10 years, my, my career is, has been more squiggly. So I've done sidestep roles where I've um, moved out of FP&A to go and get other experience. Um, so when I did my accounting qualification, I um, took some time out to do more of a general accounting role or what we call nuts and bolts accounting. Mm-hmm. I found out that wasn't for me, but it, it definitely <laughs> made me a better FP&A person because I, I understood the accounting. Um, and then I also stepped out uh, into a what we call a deals desk role, um, really to gain some commercial experience and really working closely with sales. And again, it gave me a big advantage coming back to FP&A because I got what their pain points were. I, I, I could understand um, when we were asking, why is this and deal not coming or, or this variance, I, I could understand what was driving that. And I think it allowed me also to ask better questions. Yeah. And then when I moved to compare the market, for me, in a way, it was a, a little bit of a step backwards because I went from leading uh, a team to to then stepping back from a director role. Um, but for me, it was around gaining experience of that industry. So I'd come from software and gone into financial services. And so I did that for a couple of couple of years. But actually, I, I really, I missed the people side and I'll come on to talk about leadership um, separately. But that, that was something that I really missed and was really passionate about getting back into. So yeah, that's a little bit more about myself. Well, thank you. No, I appreciate that. And I really, you know, I, I resonated with a couple of things you said. One, the ladder and the squiggly line. And, you know, having started my own business in the last year, having, uh, you know, my last company worked in more of a go-to-market than a traditional FP&A role. You know, I started my my career in procurement, pretty quickly realized that wasn't, you know, where I wanted to be long-term. So, you know, I've been in a few different places. And like you, it's invaluable to know the business and understand those pain points. It really allows us to be better professionals. It absolutely does. And and it allows us to really build that credibility with the business and and be able to think think strategically, think operationally. Yeah. Yep. No, I totally agree. So what what drew you to FP&A? What kind of brought you back to th- that within, you know, the finance realm? There's lots of different roles, but what was it about FP&A that gets you excited? Yeah, I, I think I've always been someone who's been naturally curious, naturally curious with a love for um, numbers, you know, as a, as a child, always, always wanting to do more maths. Um, and and then I, I guess when I went through started my FP&A career and, and was given lots of data to analyse, um, that I really loved exploring the whys and, and exploring the patterns and, and, yeah, that why mindset. And like I said, when I switched to the nuts and bolts, I just found that really de-energising. And so it's it's the curiosity that, that really energises me. But... I think the big thing for me is I'm very purpose-driven and for me it's all around making a difference and how I can make a difference to my stakeholders. And and when I talk about stakeholders, you know, I'm, I'm talking about my business partners, but I'm also talking about stakeholders around teams. So how can I unlock the potential of my team? But actually, how can I help wider teams? Um, how 
not even in businesses, but how can I help stakeholders within my community? So, so although I work in FP&A, I actually do a lot of, of, of work outside of work. So I'm, I'm part, I'm a vice chair of governors at, at um, my son's primary school. And so I've been able to use those FP&A skills to really help um, the strategic direction of, of the school to, to hold the head teacher to account and really drive some efficiencies there. So, yeah, I think it's all down to back to your purpose. And, and, and I feel like FP&A is where I can really drive that. And, and the really strong thing around that is business partnering. And business partnering is what I do best for me. And gives me that energy and it fits in my purpose and it's absolutely fundamental to, to to financial planning and analysis yeah so it's that business partnering combined with that curiosity and that why and that that so what mindset yeah I, I love that point about the so what mindset and you know kind of having that passion of partnering with the business because you know we we hear that buzzword thrown around all the time and I really like kind of how you broke it down and said, it's not just an FP&A use it, but it's something that I use in my life and how it's part of your purpose. So, you know, if I was to ask you, you know, somebody coming up in their career and they're trying to understand how they should business partner, what advice would you give to somebody earlier in their career about business partnering and kind of building that, that mindset or making sure they look at the business and become that trusted advisor? Mm-hmm. I think, if we break it down and we think about trust first, um, because business partnering is all around building trusted relationships. So if we break trust down into into its components, in, firstly, in terms of credibility. And when you're starting a new job, maybe a new industry, new product, uh, new company, it's not always that you've got that credibility because as a new business partner, they don't know you. And so one thing that I've had to learn is, is when I'm doing something new is really being that sponge and just absorbing and, and meeting with those stakeholders and asking them about their business, you know, getting to know them, understanding what they do, what's important for them and, and how can you help? Um, so yeah, being that being that sponge and listening. It's also around making making your stakeholders feel valued and in involving them and getting their views. Again, getting their views and, and listening to them. And then there's also the piece around so we've got credibility, reliability. This sounds quite simple, but a lot of people get it wrong. And it's around, you know, if you say you're going to do something, then 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 do it. But also, if if you end up over committing, is just being open and honest, and and trying to flag things up as as, as soon as you can, and, and really keeping that communication channel going. I think it's again, it's when you do get things wrong, is is again being that open and honest person. And yeah, I say that's that's the big the big components that I'd say um, it's, it's, those, it's those softer skills of business partnering. I mean, business partnering in FP&A, a lot of it is storytelling, but it's actually getting that relationship there that they believe your story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also thinking, being able to, to think 
be open-minded and, and think, being able to not just dismiss ideas, but being open to new ideas. No, that's, that, that's a great one. There's a lot of stuff to kind of unpack there, but I like how you mentioned, you know, trust being, being able to be trusted, you know, you're building credibility, uh, listening and being open to other viewpoints, right? All those things that allow them to let you in as a partner instead of just the finance person who's there to run the numbers, right? And I think we've all, we've all probably seen it or been with a partner that that's kind of the relationship. And, you know, it's going to be a lot of work to change that. And it starts with trust and showing how you can add value. And that requires listening and learning what the business needs. So I think you, uh, Grave some great advice there. I really appreciate that. And you know, I know it resonates for me and I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of people who who listen to the podcast. So thank you. Yeah, it, I mean, it's so true. I I remember recently, um, I'm always asking for feedback. So that's another one. Ask feedback in terms of that relationship. Um, and I remember a, a business partner saying to me, you know, Gemma, you're, you're so much more than a finance just a finance person you are that seat at the table you're that sounding board um it doesn't have to be finance related but but someone that they that they trust but but someone that positively challenges mm-hmm. and holds people to account as well which is not always easy and 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 sometimes the quite often these skills are not ones that we associate with a stereotypical finance person as well that they are harder to develop that's a great compliment to have that you're more than a finance person because really you know the role is to create value and to be a business partner and often those conversations should go beyond finance if we're really doing our job right yes we should always bring it back to the financial numbers and how it impacts you know our profitability and the company as a whole but it's so much more than that well, great. So recently I had the opportunity to listen to uh, you speak at a, an event where you talked about cash flow. So, you know, I thought uh, that's an area that definitely has become more important over the last couple of years. And one of the things you listed is, you know, top tips to improve your cash partner skills. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Maybe, you know, a little bit about those skills and just kind of cash partnering. Yeah, I mean, it's very similar to, to business partnering in general. I've already talked about the stakeholder side, but I think in terms of maybe some more specific things around cash partnering, cash partnering can be quite complex in terms of touching lots of areas of the business. So if you think about what the cash flow forecast looks like, you've got the the cash coming into the business. So I'd say around really focusing on building relationships up with, with sales teams. Um, making sure that you get involved and really understand things at the start of a a sales cycle because it's so much more easier to be able to influence a contract negotiation when when at the start than waiting at the end where it's really the last thing that that sales team want is is for them to start delaying contracts that that we're trying to negotiate payment terms for example or, or yeah so I'd say definitely on the sales side, get get close to your sales teams. Um, if you are working in FP&A and you're not responsible for the cash flow forecast, so for example, in our organization, 
my direct team aren't responsible at the moment. So we have um, a team that responsible for cash flow forecasting is to, to make sure that they're involved in the process because sometimes cash can be like the afterthought. It's what you do at the end of the process once your P&L has been done. But they need to understand that story as well. They need to understand the assumptions that you've made, you know, what's happening, for example, what have you assumed about the economic assumptions? And we'll probably come and talk about the pandemic and energy crisis in a moment, but really getting them on the same page and involving them earlier, getting people who are involved in the process, getting early views and really understanding your drivers. So understanding maybe who your key customers are. Maybe you've got um, key customers that are problem accounts in terms of paying cash, but also understanding the big rocks in terms of who you are paying so you can understand potentially the cash outflows and what levers you've got to play with um, when things when things happen. And also it'll help you when you're doing your stress testing and your scenario planning to really understand those pieces as well. I'd say that's probably the the top tips in terms of cash. And I really like how you mentioned often cash is something we kind of think about at the end, which is the wrong mindset, right? You really want to be able to think about it throughout the process. And for me, I think one of the times I really kind of understood the importance of cash partnering, because I've never been in charge of cash cash flow and building the cash flow forecast in, in my career is, we had a situation where we had one of our largest customers. They were almost 20% of this, com- this company, one of our many companies within the overall organization, but their revenue and they hadn't mm-hmm. paid us for six months and went to the sales guys and like, look, we need to turn them off if they're not going to pay us. And they went back and forth and we're doing, I finally said, look, we need to check on our desk tomorrow or you guys got to shut them off. We can't continue to do this after going back and forth for a while. And funny enough, I guess the salesperson told them to uh, address it to me. And I got this six-figure check on my desk the next day. And it was kind of, you know, I was like, okay, this is cash. You know, it was just a reminder to me that, okay, on paper, we showed all this revenue. But until that check came in, we hadn't, you know, really earned anything Mm -hmm. and how important cash was. So it was a a kind of a fun reminder of the importance of what you were talking about there. Yeah. And and even with sales teams, if you're, if you're working in more of a, a service-led organization where um, you've got teams of consultants and uh, implementations, actually, they're great people to, to connect with as well because it's quite often that they know what the customer pain points are more than the sales team because mm-hmm. they've built that trust and trust with the customer rather than the salesperson going in trying to sell them something. No, that's a great point. The uh, implementation, the customer service, the account manager that is in there with them daily and dealing with their pain points versus the sales guy who usually comes in every so often and tries to add some more sales to the to the account. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, obviously the last couple of years have, you know, felt unprecedented for many people. Just a ton of change, right? You got the, we had a global pandemic that we're still filling the repercussions of today. You know, you got the European energy crisis. We've had conflicts abroad. You know, and I think a lot of that has uh, changed the way a lot of people have looked at the importance of cash. How has that kind of shaped your view and maybe impacted your your perspective on cash forecasting and 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and if we think about those things, you know, the pan, like you said, the pandemic, the energy crisis, the, the situation that we've currently got with Ukraine, um, usually those events in a tip, I say a typical world would probably happen over, you know, the course of a hundred years. You think about, you know, the last pandemic being things like the Spanish flu and, um, crises with when we had short, I, I remember my parents talking about, shortages with energy and 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 having three-day weeks at work in terms of situations I, I remember in the 90s um with with the gulf situation in the gulf but we've had that over t- over you know a space of two years that that's that's it's been condensed and and I think that's where you know we we've seen that it's had a huge impact and in terms of how it's changed things I think before people said cash was sort of an afterthought and okay if if, if revenues if revenues are doing okay and, and we've got manageable costs then then we don't need to worry about cash but we saw things change overnight and worlds got changed upside down and for example with the energy crisis those markets shut some of our some of the price comparison markets, income streams overnight. And yeah, things that did weren't a problem became on the torchlight. Mm-hmm. And that, that whole mentality of we don't need to worry about cash um, just went out the window. So definitely we've, I've seen um, and, and spoken to lots lots of other FP&A people and definitely seen much more focus on, on cash cash management. No, for sure. I agree with you. I mean, it feels like the amount of uncertainty and change has been condensed. Like you said, what might have we've seen in, you know, 50 or a hundred years we saw in a two, three year period and we continue to see, you know, it's just unprecedented change, unprecedented uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, the lifeblood of any business is cash. You know, the rest of it is, is accounting when you really get down to it without the cash, you don't have the accounting. Yeah. And we've seen some real victims of this, right? Some big, we've seen some big names in the UK that were always household high street names that have, have, have gone into administration and, and yeah, they won't be the last. Not surprised. I mean, I remember for us, you know, when, you know, it first hit in the US and we shut down the company I was at, at the, at that time, we supported primarily, you know, uh, claims for automobiles. And so our European business, nobody was driving. So the transactional pieces were all of a sudden down, you know, 90%. Fortunately, we had some subscription revenue. We were fairly diversified. But I can, you know, just remember those early days, everything about cash. What does that mean? How do we get relief from our vendors? What do we do to make sure we maximize how long cash flow will last? Because everybody, you know, nobody had idea how long this was going to last. And there was just so much uncertainty. So definitely it it highlighted that importance for all of us. And it definitely made stress testing more real. <laughs> where, where you'd normally do your stress testers and, you know, you naturally think, oh, this, this, this couldn't happen. And, and it was, and it is. Yep, exactly. You're like, not only did it, it is happening. We're living it. Like yeah. you, we need to do stress testing. You know, I... You know, I gained in a little bit of an appreciation for stress testing because I went to work in the uh, 
for a bank in 2000, late 2008. So right at the end of the global financial crisis when all the rules were coming around stress testing. I wasn't so much involved in that part of the business, but always hearing about it. But I really only thought of about it, you know, for the big, huge banks who have, you know, sometimes trillions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars of cash and are critical to the whole economy. This pandemic helped bring it down to every, I think, every company. I think many big companies has kind of got laxed in their mm-hmm. cash management. Yeah. And it hit home. Yeah. And it's like the energy crisis in Europe. It's, it's affected every single business and every single household. Not, not surprised. So kind of switching gears there a little bit, you know, you'd, you'd mentioned earlier in the podcast, and I know you talk about this on LinkedIn, you'd mentioned it in your uh, profile. You have a passion for, for people and helping empower people, helping them grow and unlock their potential. So maybe can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you empower people, how you help individuals and teams grow to reach their potential? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. And I'm really, really passionate about this. And, and again, it's, it's all about paying it forward for me. So the more people I can help, the better. So in terms of practically how I do it, because I always like to give sort of practical examples. The first thing I say is, is I remember um, my, my, my father saying to me, you know, the greatest gift you can give someone is, is time. And, and I think when we're really busy at work, sometimes the easiest thing is to, is to just move meetings or move those one-to-ones. And, you know, I've got a real passion for making sure that that the people come first because I need my team to perform. I need them to feel valued because if they aren't successful, then then I'm not successful. My first tip would be around having really meaningful one-to-ones. So not just having Mm -hmm. one-to-ones for the sake of it. And something that that I've recently introduced is is really taking a step back and thinking, how are we using those one-to-ones and giving them a little bit more structure and empowering my team to actually own their own agenda of the one-to-ones. It's not it's not me owning the one-to-one as mm-hmm. the manager. It's actually, and the first thing we go through is, what do you want to get out today? Is, is there anything critical that you want to dis- to discuss because quite often with teams if if you need to discuss something and it's maybe it's going to be a bit of an awkward conversation people tend to put it off and leave it to right at the end of the one-to-one it was another podcast I was listening to and it said about just actually just bringing that first if there's anything that they need to critically talk around and then we, we split it into the four p's so the first thing is And again, they drive their own agenda, whether they need to talk to me about people. So it might be um, some support that they need with with a person. The other one is around priorities. So whether they, again, discussing priorities, but whether they need me to, um, I ask whether you need to discuss, make a decision on on the one-to-one. So they might need help prioritising their time, maybe feeling overwhelmed again bring it back to helping them with their well-being and making them feel valued and we talk around if there's any projects um, that that's happening at the moment and and progress so what's happened in the last week what they were focusing on the next week but it's really their own agenda and they drive that I will you know there, there may be things that I need to discuss as well but it's down to them owning owning that the other bit of practical advice is 
is getting them involved in the decisions because that's where people do feel valued. And um, when you think about empowerment and we think about the opposite extremes of empowerment, so you've got someone who's so fully empowered and, and they're just left to their own devices and on the other end of the scale, someone who's very micromanaged and directed and controlled. Actually, it's not about just having complete full empowerment. And this is something I've learned recently through a leadership development program. It's all around empowerment, but with clarity. So with my teams, it's around, actually, this is what I need you to do, but you go and do the how. And so an example is um, around, so we send daily MI out. Mm -hmm. And um, we've been looking at the commentary and the storytelling around that. And what we've noticed is, there's not enough of the why and the so what and the now what. So my brief was, let can we get, let's get more of that so what and now what into it and not just the what. But you go off and you go and redesign the MI for that. And again, encourage them to have checking points, um, but really letting them feel that, that, they're able to bring their own ideas to the table. And then from a structure point of view, uh, I've recently introduced 90-day plans. Mm -hmm. Um, I have my own 90-day plans, but my team, we work together and and they come up with what they believe their 90-day plans should be. Um, And this is something that they've shared with our wider finance team because they found it so useful to them to be able to give them focus on daily activities, weekly activities, but also for them to think around their own development. And so every four to six weeks, we also have development one-to-ones. So we have regular one-to-ones, but we have development one-to-ones. Um, and then they inform the next 90 days as well. Another thing a- around unlocking people's potential is is by me leading by example. And it's such an important thing. So if if I'm wanting my teams to come out of their comfort zones, which I always encourage, I need to come out of my own comfort zone. So I need to go and try new things. So an example of that might be, it was, is today. So this is my first ever podcast. And we spoke earlier about, um, it's something that I've, I've always wanted to do and probably needed to just be a bit braver doing that. And so when you said about doing the podcast, I was like, yes. Let's let's tick that off the bucket list. So, um, and and also encourage learning. Again, me leading by example. I'm I'm always trying to think of ways to better myself. I do. A, I listen to a lot of other podcasts. Um, I listen to one um, called the Amazing If Squiggly Career Podcast, um, which I found really really useful. It's a UK based um, free. UK-based website and tool and really, really practical. So again, leading by example as well. Thank you. I appreciate you shared, you know, a lot there, a lot of great information, but a couple of things stuck out to me. I like how you had the four Ps, the 90-day plan. So I see a few areas. There was structure. There was also the importance of enabling and empowering. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you don't allow people to feel involved and feel ownership, they're always going to fall short of their potential of what you can, you know, what you can get out of them because 
Yeah, it's such a huge thing. So there's a lot of great things there. Like I said, how you challenge yourself. And then I'm just grateful we could have you on the show to cross off something off your bucket list. That's always <laughs> nice to, you know, reduce that, uh, reduce one line and go on to the next one. So, you know, congratulations on being on your first podcast. Thank you. And you, you never know in a few months time, um, maybe one of my team will be on the podcast that they'll feel inspired to, uh, to come and do something like that. Well, that's exactly it. And I hope they, you know, enjoy listening. And then the last thing I like how you talked about is just the importance of kind of situational leadership is what I like to call it. You know, and I learned this principle through some leadership courses. I did a lot of scouting. I was a scout leader for a lot of years with, with youth. And it really helped teach me. They gave, I did one of their leadership courses and I loved the way they explained it. They called it the, the edge principle. Explain, demonstrate, guide, enable. And teams and people are at different points. And depending on where they're at, you need to take a different approach. Like when I'm teaching a new skill to boys, I'm going to explain it. But if I have older boys who have done it before, then I'm going to stand back and let one of them explain it. I'm going to enable them. And that's where you always want to get is that enablement. But depending on someone's skill set and where they're at, you can't always just jump in and say, hey, here, go do that project. Right? I've enabled you. Sometimes you actually really need to hold their hand and do it with them. And that was a really just always stuck with me, that leadership training. And I've had to remind myself of that a few times over the years. You work with someone, okay, step back. Where are they at? You, you're, you're, you're expecting too much at this moment, you know, kind of working through those different stages. I've written that down, Edge. I'm going to have a look at that. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's been a great leadership principle. In fact, you'll kind of laugh. It sits here on my, uh, on my desk, this is the card from what's it been now? Thirteen years ago, I think. So when I took the took the training, I still have always kept it in my office, and it has a little kind of examples and a few different pictures and things, and it's really kind of helped guide me in my way of thinking about leadership. Well, if you've had that for thirteen years, then uh, it must be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the few things that survived on my desk that long. I think there's been maybe two or three, so not many, but. Reminded me of um, a couple of things that people have said to me. So, my um, mentor a few years ago, I remember her saying to me, "You know, Jeremy, you've got your comfort zone, and then outside of that's where the magic happens." And I've seen it a few times now, but it is so true. Um, and again, it's it's really helping. To, like you said, that little bit. I might just need that little bit of encouragement to get them out of that comfort zone. Yeah, and, and also allowing them to make mistakes. And we talk about failing fast a lot in, in terms of agile ways of working, but it is, it's, it's around them. Like back to the daily MI piece I, I described, you know, they're not going to get it all right, but it actually it's what, it's what you learn along the way. So true. It's about the journey and letting people fail, as we say, fail fast or getting outside the comfort zone. Like right now I'm trying to, a kind of a personal story, but my daughter is, we, we have an amusement park close by and we go quite a bit and I'm trying to get her on one of the, what's considered the scariest roller coaster in the park. And she's keeps like, I'm going to go. And then like, no, I'm not doing it, dad. No, I'm going to go. No, I'm, you know, and I think I'm going to share the saying you said there, I've been trying to help her get out of her comfort zone. I'm like, what's, you know, what's the worst that could happen here? You enjoy it. Like, you know, or, or you don't, you don't go again. It's not, you know, there's nothing life threatening here, but to her, it's just, you know, that that terrifying moment of like, I can't do this. Well, that's it. And quite often it's the build up with anything, isn't it? It's like when you're planning for maybe a difficult conversation, um, doing something new for the first time, 
the build up to it is far worse than the actual thing that you end up doing. Yeah, almost always. Very, very true. So we have just a couple more questions here. I've, you know, I've loved the conversation and could keep going, but I know, you know, people don't want to listen forever and we all have things to do. So just a couple more questions. One here is just kind of, as you look at the future of FP&A, what do you maybe see as kind of the biggest either opportunity or challenge? Kind of what, where do you see kind of the future of FP&A? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think if I start with challenges first and I'll move on to the opportunities. So in terms of challenges, We've mentioned before that this this whole volatility, and I know as a business ourselves, it is so difficult to forecast at the moment. Because <laughs> that trend analysis that we used to do, it, yeah, what is normal? So that I think that's the biggest challenge. And and like we said, it, it, this isn't over yet. And again, understanding the trends and, and, and trying to strip back is a real challenge. And the second thing is around data quality. So <laughs> I don't know if I've ever, if I've come across a business who, hand on heart, can actually say that they haven't got a data quality issue. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's it's how we can work with what we've got, understand its limitations, and, and maybe try and fill some of the gaps. But but actually also working. On more serious note, is working with the data teams to really understand root causes and working together on that. I think that's the biggest challenge. Uh, in terms of opportunities, so going back to the volatility, I don't think the business have needed us as much as they need us now. They are crying out for business partners. That's the feedback that I'm getting. And actually, it's around us creating those opportunities to be able to spend more time business partnering. And I think in terms of the ways that we're setting up our structures, I think as FP&A leaders, we need to be really thinking about how we're going to set ourselves up longer term and taking that step back to look at to look at that long-term success. Yeah, I know that makes sense. I mean, managing that uncertainty and data quality. I, I laugh because, right, we've all been there. Yeah, we've all worked for those companies where you're like, wait, the data is how bad? And you think it's only that company and you go somewhere else and you're like, wait, we have what kind of data problem? <laughs> you know, yeah. no matter where you go, it's there's why there's studies that say, you know, sometimes FP&A spends upwards of 60% of their time doing data prep and cleaning. Cleansing, yeah. Yep, you know, we've all, I'm sure we've all been there late into the night sometimes cleaning something up so so you can actually find the value add information out of the data. Right. So that one hit home for me. And I think, you know, opportunity, I agree. We've never been needed more than we are now. No. And I think it's about taking ownership ourselves in terms of how can we unlock more time to spend with the business. And that might not necessarily be just chucking people at it. It's really looking at our processes and really challenging why we're doing things, how we're doing them. And one thing that we've looked at recently is in terms of our forecasting cadence and and actually how much value is doing weekly forecasting versus bi-weekly forecasting we we've, we've changed and but what we did was we used data to give us that insight in terms of how it was potentially going to change it whether it was going to really 
increase or reduce our accuracy and and it was back to back to that storytelling so using our fpna skills to really go and have a conversation with our cfo in terms of do you really need a forecast every week yeah no i i appreciate that and that's a that's a great example and i love how you use data to inform the decision right you changed a process too well, so here's kind of a fun, fun question we like to ask people. And so what's something that not many people would know about you? Like if I went and looked online, you know, I could see your LinkedIn profile, learn a little about your career and things, but what's something that maybe people wouldn't know about you that's kind of, they'd find interesting? I guess it depends what you define as the word interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to you. Yeah. So interesting to me, my husband and I have a of a huge passion for for gin, as in the um, gin and tonic. Um, we have our own little gin bar. Actually, my husband's just built us a little gin bar in our in our garden, and um, we we must have we must have about fifty bottles of different flavoured gins. Um, and yeah, so I've I've got some really weird and wacky flavours. So we've got. Um, I'm a Yorkshire girl, so we've got a, a, a Yorkshire tea gin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we've got a, a tomato gin. All righty. And, and also a lavender gin. So <laughs> drink that one before bed to, to help calm you. So, yeah, that's a little fun fact about me. Like I said, uh, depends what you define as interesting. <laughs> well, hey, it can, you know, it can be fun and it sounds like you got quite a quite a collection lots of different flavors i imagine a little bit of everything yeah as 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 the normal stuff as well yeah sure yeah i would imagine there's some of the normal but people usually like to hear about the more interesting things lavender gin isn't probably a real common one no. you know yorkshire tea some of those that you mentioned aren't aren't ones you typically think of so that's that's fun tomatoes yeah exactly the tomatoes as well yep so la- last question here is, you know, on the show, we're a, big, we're a big fan of Excel here. And one thing we like to ask every guest is, favorite Excel function, what is it and why? So I guess these days I spend less time in Excel than maybe I used to when I first started my career. Um, so the most, my favorite one is the one that got me my first role. And I say mm-hmm. got first role in my first role I was asked if I knew what a pivot table was and fresh out of university in the year 2000 we hadn't learned about pivot tables sure and then so I I was honest and I said I don't know what a pivot table is but in my second interview I will come back and tell you what one is and I'll know how to use it and uh and I got the role on the second interview so uh so yeah, it's a it's a good one, but it's it's more of a nostalgic function, I think. Sure. No. Well, I mean, and you know, pivot tables is definitely one a lot of people use, but I can see where the nostalgia is of having got you your first role. So that's a that's a great story, and you know, it's a great great feature in Excel. So just kind of in wrap up here, I really want to thank you for your time today, Gemma. We've really enjoyed having you on the show. You've been a a great guest and given a lot of good information. And I know our audience will you'll find your advice around partnering and leading teams and, and those things really valuable. So thanks again for taking the time to be with us on the show today. You are more than welcome.
And again, congratulations on crossing one item off the bucket list. I'm going to tick that. I'm going to do it. I like a tick, so it's definitely getting ticked tonight. All righty. Well, good deal. Kick it and have some some lavender gin while you're at it. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it.